This is the Gender Card Podcast from Griffith University's Gender Equality Research Network. I'm Nance Haxton, and together we will speak to the vanguard of remarkable researchers breaking down the issues of gender equality, women's leadership and gender inclusivity in all realms of life. Human trafficking, it's a term we are now familiar with as a present day form of slavery. But what about orphanage trafficking? Griffith University Law School lecturer, Dr. Kate Van Dor tells me on the Gender Card podcast, how Australia is one of the first countries in the world to recognize orphanage trafficking as a modern worldwide problem. Her research has found that around 80% of children living in orphanages are being exploited as they have at least one living parent and are kept in institutions to attract international volunteers and investment. And while general knowledge of this trend is growing, Dr Van Dor is urging all of us to not be caught up in benevolent harm, where our good intentions are used to keep children enslaved. Her organisation, Forget Me Not, aims to stop the demand for orphans through grassroots education and empowerment programs and reunifying displaced families in Nepal, Uganda, and India. Kate Van Dor, welcome to the Gender Card Podcast. Thanks, Nan. Thank you so much for joining us. Really looking forward to hearing about your very important research and how this has expanded in recent times. But could you tell us firstly, how did you first start in this particular specialty? So my research interests are in child trafficking and particularly trafficking into orphanages. And I first got started in that because I actually co-founded an orphanage in Nepal, in Kathmandu, in 2006. And we thought we were doing the right thing. We had at least we had six beautiful little girls at the time that we that had come from another overflowing orphanage into our orphanage. And everything was hunky-dory. We thought they were settling in well, lovely. Three years later, we had 20 in that orphanage and we were approached to take over another orphanage in Uganda, which we did. And um, we went to see those children. They were in Kampala. And there were 39 kids in this very crowded little house with this dormitory out the back that was really ramshackle, falling down. And these 39 kids were just in the most dire straits. It was just... Oh, it must have been so distressing. It was so distressing and heartbreaking you know, from malaria to malnutrition. There was a, you know, a boy who was nearly two who couldn't walk yet. Mm. There was a little girl of two and a half who was in my arms with malaria who I thought would probably pass away. The whole thing was just uh, terrible. So we decided we would help out and um, start funding. And about 18 months after we started funding, things seemed to be going really well. The kids were in school. They all looked a lot healthier. They are having regular meals. All of those sorts of basics were done. But we started suspecting that maybe there was some money going missing. So we put a project manager in there and eventually she said, oh, I'm in over my head, can you come over too? So I I flew over as well. Mm -hmm. And we had an independent audit done which showed essentially that two or $3,000 had been skimmed off the top. So it wasn't a huge amount of money we were talking about, but it was enough for us to feel really uncomfortable. So we went to the government and said, these people shouldn't be running an orphanage, they're, you know misappropriating funds can we close them down the government agreed so we closed them down and that's where that's the real genesis of my research story so we closed them down pulled the kids out 
And the kids started asking whether they could go home to their families. Oh, these are children that have been in an orphanage. These are kids that have been in an orphanage for years. And, and we had been told they were orphans. They themselves had told us they were orphans. Oh. And all of a sudden, in a matter of a couple of hours, the whole story un- came unraveled. And they, they weren't orphans at all. Many of them had different names that had been given to them by the orphanage director. And they all had family and wanted to go home. And some of them remembered their parents' phone numbers and we were able to call them. How did this evolve, Kate? I I think people are still quite shocked to hear that these kind of stories can happen. Yeah, it was really crazy. And it it made me at the time think, oh, what's happening? You know, these people were profiting off these children and they've somehow set up this fake arrangement. And I, I kind of thought it would just be reserved to that one orphanage. And then I started doing some research and discovered that, in fact, it wasn't at all just that one orphanage. So then we went back and looked at our Nepal orphanage and discovered exactly the same thing had happened there, that most of those children had families that they could also go home to, that they'd been recruited by orphanages or or recruiters moving through villages, offering parents an education for their children. Parents let their kids go. Often the parents were paying the recruiters thinking they were paying for the boarding school the kids would be going to, only to have the child disappear once they hit the capital city. And so when they went to go and visit them, they couldn't Couldn't find find them quite often? Absolutely, couldn't find them. And complicated by the fact that often these recruiters and child finders work in quite remote villages and the dialect is different there to what it is in, say, a capital city like Kathmandu or in Kampala. So there's a language barrier. There's often an educational literacy barrier for parents trying to find their children. And and there's a remoteness because of the locality of where they source these kids from. So it's a really common story. And when I pulled back, I saw research from Save the Children that said 80% of children uh, across the world that are living in orphanages have family that could care for them if, if they were supported. And there were up to 8 million children in orphanages across the world. So that kind of just made me do the, take this big step back. And we changed the whole direction of our organisation at that time. And we moved from supporting orphanages to finding families reunifying children with their families in a very safe, monitored way and then um, keeping those families together and that's what we do now. And in those why countries. have you decided to, to reunify families? What, what, what are the advantages there? So we know already in this great country um, that institutionalisation is bad for children. We closed our large-scale orphanages in the 70s, 60s, 70s, 80s, so a considerable amount of time ago. Um, because we know that the harm of ch- that occurs to children growing up in an orphanage, you know, is irreversible essentially, and they grow up with cognitive issues. We've just seen a royal commission look at institutional abuses, and the evidence that has come from that royal commission has been completely heartbreaking. And yet, for some reason, we suspend all of that intense knowledge that we have on one hand, when it comes to children in institutions overseas. And we think that because they might be poverty-stricken, an orphanage is a better option for them. But the research shows that actually that's not the case. Truly. So you're better off in with your family, even if your circumstances are quite challenging, than being in an orphanage. Absolutely. And it costs, you know, six to ten times less to keep a child in their family 
than it does to have them in an orphanage. And so, to perhaps help them with their education absolutely. expenses within that environment. Yes, and get the family up and running with income generation and all of those sorts of things. And even if the family isn't capable of ever achieving that, cash transfers and, until the kids are, are big enough to get out on their own two feet is a better option. Kate, was this a shock to you when you uncovered this? It was a complete shock to me. You know, I freely say I was a bit naive. I had just swallowed the same kind of information that I think most Australians swallow and most people around the world. And when we think about orphanages overseas, we think that it's a good thing. And we celebrate founders of orphanages in this country particularly. We, we give them all sorts of awards and medals. I was one of those people. I got, <laughs> I was awarded, you know, and um, praised and we, you know, we really need to challenge that those assumptions, I think, because we already have the research and the evidence that shows us what's going on. We just have this cognitive dissonance that when it comes to aid for overseas countries, we think orphanages are a great way to do it, but they're actually they're not. So this is not even just limited to Uganda or Nepal. No. This is a worldwide this problem? is a worldwide problem. So I can pretty much name any country that's a low to middle income country that still has institutional care. And I can tell you that this is a problem. Recruitment of children into that care is a problem. And that's where my research nests. And so it becomes like a money making exercise, essentially exploiting children? Yeah. And look, I think there are some orphanages which are set up explicitly for profit. So they're recruiting kids in because there's not enough orphans to meet the demand for all of the orphanage funding that we want to do and all of the orphanage volunteering that we want to do. And it's a very lucrative business. So that's where this idea of recruiting kids into orphanages to pose as orphans comes from. And that's what my work has been looking at, that recruitment process and, and what happens to the kids once they're in the orphanages and making a case that that's a form of child trafficking under international law. What have you found in Australia since you've really brought this to light, I've, I've noticed in the last couple of years particularly, uh, do we still have a lot of people in Australia wanting to volunteer at orphanages, wanting to support orphanages, or, or is that knowledge increasing that this may not be a great idea? I think awareness is growing, but I think we still have a long, long way to go. If I could count, oh, I can't even count the number of times people say to me all the time, I have a friend who's heading to an orphanage, can I put them in touch with you <laughs> to volunteer or to, or I have a friend who's been funding this orphanage for 20 years, but it's a good one. Um, it's, it is hard. It's hard to challenge people's preconceived notions of what they think, and, and particularly when people are really attached to the orphanage that they're giving to. It's, it's really difficult. But I think that's one of the important elements of the forget-me-not story and telling that story and my story because people get to see that even though you have that great attachment and you're very involved, like no one can be more involved than a co-founder. I mean, that's, that's kind of, you know, next-level involvement. Um, it's still possible to reinvent the way you're doing things and to encourage things that are best practice rather than just to keep on doing what we're doing. So tell me a bit about the Forget Me Not story. That's what your organisation evolved into when you discovered what yes. was really happening? Yeah, so we'd started as Forget Me Not Children's Home in 2005 and now we're Forget Me Not Australia. <laughs> so we've evolved um, because we, we no longer operate children's homes. But we work in India, Uganda and Nepal 
and we work on a range of prevention programs to stop kids ending up in orphanages to start with and we work on a range of reunification programs where in Nepal we work with the government to close orphanages and trace and reunify kids with their families and then we work on a range of family preservation like keeping families together and so we try and do all of those things just to kind of help curb this issue. So orphanages are still being established in these countries? Yeah, even though there's moratoriums on orphanages being established in some of these countries, one of the big issues is that most orphanages, if we use Uganda or Nepal as an example, most of those orphanages are privately funded. And when they're privately funded, they register in different ways, so they fly under the radar. And often the funders aren't aware that that's the case. So a common thing to do across the African continent is to register as a community-based organisation, which gives you a sort of like a not-for-profit stamp, but doesn't actually entitle you to run an orphanage. To do that, you need a separate set of agreements with the government, but many orphanages don't have that, and they operate as as a child welfare centre, as a community-based organisation. So they fly under the orphanage radar. They don't show up in any data, And because they're all privately funded, they're not relying on the government for anything. So the money just comes in from our side. Governments can be a bit um, reticent to do anything about that because they don't want to disturb the outside funding that's coming into the country and the tourism dollar that's associated with that. So there's a massive amount of tourism associated with orphanages. Because quite often uh, volunteers will pay to stay at the orphanage to in order to participate and to, to give... Their, yeah. their labour, and, and I think I heard you say as well that a lot of people go as volunteers without really announcing that that's what they are doing. That's a Absolutely. problem as well. Absolutely. It is a problem. So in Australia, we've had a high degree of success in talking to companies that offer volunt- orphanage volunteering and getting them to withdraw those products from the market in recognition that this is an issue. Um, the issue of trafficking in orphanages is a real problem. But just volunteering in an orphanage is a real problem too because those kids often don't have secure attachments to primary caregivers. So when you have volunteers walking in and out of their lives every few weeks or even a few months, they grow very attached to those volunteers only to have them wrenched away. And that repeated cycle of attachment and abandonment you can imagine what that does to a child's psyche and then we often don't see the results of that until a child's in adulthood and then can't form and maintain relationships because of the experience they had as a child Um, so there's those sorts of harms of volunteering too that don't even play into the profit but play into what's happening to kids and I suppose it's actually exploiting really the participants the volunteers who are young people who want to make positive change who who want to use their hard-earned dollars in a way that contributes to a struggling society struggling economy and they don't realize what they're walking into no and they really are going with really good intentions Uh, somewhere recently referred to it as benevolent harm as this idea that you have the best of intentions but ultimately you're not helping, you're harming more than you're helping and that's the case with orphanage volunteering and it's something that orphanage volunteers often don't realise themselves. Even reflecting on their experience often think, oh, but the kids were so loving and they ran up to me and they adored me and, you know, I played these games with them and, you know, I I provided all this love to them that they wouldn't have otherwise had. 
and then they don't realise that that is actually part of the harm that's being caused. I'm just fascinated, Kate, that this research has really evolved from something so intimately involved in your life. It's been quite a, a life's journey that you have been on to get to this point as well and to, to reflect and realise what was happening. Yeah, I think reflection is a, is the key there <laughs> because obviously when you're going through these things, things happen kind of slowly and you have these gradual realisations. And now I look back on it and... I, I feel, I think, oh, you were so naive and how did you even get involved in that? But I got involved in it because I wanted to help and I thought that an orphanage was helpful. So I think the challenge, like challenging myself through that, challenging myself when we when we found out what we found out in Uganda, we sought advice from other organisations about what to do because we're just a small organisation and all of these other organisations said, stop funding and get out, just get out now you don't need the bad press and for us I mean we'd started because we were in it to help kids so it didn't seem like a very good option to just stop funding and pretend it wasn't happening and it didn't seem like a good option for us but nor for our donors and I thought that would be an even worse press story if, if you stopped funding and then eventually someone goes, hey, why did you stop funding there? And they worked it out. Like, you know, you either stand for the rights of children or you don't. And what a journey for your donors as well to bring them along with you, Kate. That must have been quite a feat to communicate this to them as well. Yeah, I think we had the attitude the whole time of we tell it, we tell it all and we tell it fast and we just give it all to them. But that's what being transparent is as an organisation. The other organisations have said to us, you'll lose donors if they find out about this. But in fact, we gained donors <laughs> after the Uganda thing happened and and people really came on board because they said, "We, you know, we like the integrity of what you've done there and that you've told everyone and that now you're doing the right thing. And it's been an education. That's quite encouraging to hear that that honesty has and integrity, as you say, has come through. And I think also in that Australian context, can you tell us a bit about your research and how that uh, has played into the the developments with the Australian slavery legislation? Because that really was quite useful in the development of that. Yeah, we have formed a network in 2015 called Rethink Orphanages Australia, and it was a coalition essentially of academia, charities, faith-based organisations, um, corporate travel companies and corporations and the education sector. And we really were looking to take a holistic approach at tackling how Australia engages with vulnerable children overseas and particularly this idea of institutionalisation. And we have had great success in looking at this issue from a range of perspectives and key to that has been our involvement with Minister Linda Reynolds who has been a great advocate in Parliament for this work and she was sitting on the Modern Slavery Inquiry Committee when there was first talk of maybe Australia should have a Modern Slavery Act. So it was quite, I suppose it was quite handy that the Modern Slavery Inquiry arose when it did because we had just been seeing some international recognition of this process of children being taken into orphanages being recognised as trafficking, and trafficking is a form of modern slavery. So when that um, modern slavery inquiry came up, we were able to put in a, a number of submissions across our network that said, you know, we believe that this form of trafficking, orphanage trafficking, 
um, should be recognised as a form of modern slavery. And the outcome of that inquiry was that the committee recommended that it, it be recommend it, it be a recognised as a form of modern slavery, which is the a world first. Australia. And is that in the legislation? Or? It's in the it's incorporated into the definition of the legislation, which is quite broad of, of modern slavery. But it actually appears in the explanatory notes to the memorandum. That's uh, fantastic to the bill. Yeah. because it does show that that understanding is increasing when it's recognised in that. Absolutely. Uh, And they also did what they termed a smart volunteer campaign, which runs alongside the smart traveller campaign. And that's been specifically targeting volunteering in orphanages and saying the government doesn't recommend that because we recognise it's a harmful practice. So they've done that as well. And there's all sorts of other things that are happening in the background with charity regulation, education regulation, about all school trips that go to orphanages, things like that. So we're working across the whole, all of these different sectors to try and iron out all of the little creases that allowed these things to happen to start with. And were you happy with the way the legislation was formulated or are there improvements there that, that could be made? Look, I think the overarchingly, the legislation ended up being a supply chain regulator. So it was a little bit different from what everybody was expecting, different from the United Kingdom's Modern Slavery Act, which actually incorporated all the offences of trafficking and slavery into it. So we've ended up with a piece of legislation that essentially requires any entities that have over $100 million in revenue to report on their how they mitigate the risk of slavery in their supply chains. So it's a little bit different to what we're expecting, but there is a review period after three years, so we'll see what happens then. And it does, I mean, for the purpose of orphanage trafficking, it does require any travel company or charity or, you know, education facility like a university that currently has orphanage tourism as one of their um, things that they do to report on how they're mitigating the risk of trafficking in there. It's interesting that these terms are becoming more well known. I think one of the terms that I read from your research was the term paper orphans. Is that yes. correct? Can you explain <laughs> that for us? What is that? Paper orphans are when children are recruited from a family into an orphanage and um, usually for the purpose of exploitation and profit. And exploitation includes all sorts of things like sexual exploitation, bonded labour, um, slavery, slavery-like practices. They're all kind of legal terms that refer back to international treaties that we're a party to. Um, and the paper orphan part comes from the process. So after they're recruited into the orphanage, what usually or often happens is the new documentation is created for them and it's fake documentation. So they get new death certificates for parents or new birth registrations with new names on them. And this paper trail is created. Gosh, so there's that much detail involved. There is. Not in all cases, Mm. but in some cases. Mm. So we call them paper orphans because they're orphans by virtue of these fake paperwork only. Which would make it harder and harder to reconnect them with their family, I imagine. Absolutely. And sometimes the paperwork holds keys because it's been stamped by particular villages or it's been signed off by particular people. So sometimes there's, you know traces there but it is quite difficult. The paper orphans I think is is just a fascinating term for it because it really does encapsulate the effort that some of these organisations go to to hide the children that are in their supposed care. 
Absolutely. And I think um, it arises out of our need to see documentation for everything. So, for example, with the original children that were in our Nepal orphanage, I had seen all of their paperwork. But I'm a lawyer. I did all the due diligence. I saw those death certificates. I saw their birth certificates. Oh, for the parents. Yeah. Truly. So, you know, when, when we were told that they weren't real, it's quite challenging because as a lawyer, you're used to sifting through documents. You know, that's part of the process that you undertake. And then to find out that they weren't even real is, is yeah, challenging. Now, you've just been back to Nepal, Kate. Can you tell us, that must have been an incredible journey. You hadn't been there for some time. What's happened to those children that were in your orphanage at that time? So the 20 children that we had originally, um, they're all, well, they're all young women now. They were all girls, so they're all young women. The youngest is about 15 and the eldest is in her 20s. They were all at home. We traced and reunified all of them. There's three older girls who are living in an independent flat that we support and whilst they go to college and university. But the rest of them are fully supported at home by their parents. And then we get them together once a year um, so they can see each other. And, oh, so they're and still in touch? They're very much in touch. They still call each other sisters. They were bound together really by, for eight years, you know, living together. Um, so they're very, very close. And, yeah, they're, they're scattered across Nepal now. So it's important for them to come together, I think. And, and I hadn't seen them for five years, so it was really nice for me to get to see them. Because, you know, part of the challenge was when we found their families and sent them home was how do we manage the relationships that we have with those children there's a very small group of us you know probably under 10 that had really um, formed strong bonds with these kids because we came every six months and saw them and we thought do we are we supposed to cut off those relationships now like how do we navigate that and it's been very much a process of let's just see. Um, we took some social work advice at the time that said certainly don't cut off <laughs> cut off all communication. Um, you know, that, that wouldn't be a great thing. But be supportive of the families and be supportive of, you know, them as people. And so, you know, we've encouraged that. So. How has that reunification gone with their families after eight years sometimes apart? Yeah, it's tricky because people, I mean, you kind of want to think everything's going to be a happily ever after situation. But often it's not. Teenagers can be challenging at the best of times. We know that. And, you know, these girls are in their teens and going through some tough times. But the important part is that they're monitored and supported by our social workers and counsellors, not just the child but the whole family. And so the process of reunification is taken quite slowly. The child isn't reintroduced to the family until an appropriate time, well, you know, in the living situation. And then that's very carefully managed out. So we have a really, really high success rate. Yeah, we're very proud of that. But we, it's a constant juggle. And for the ones who didn't have family to go back to, that they are being supported as well by your organisation? Absolutely. Very, very much and um, very much emotionally supported as well as financially supported. So there's just three in that situation. Um, And we found family for two of them, but the situation wasn't really tenable at home. And the third one we haven't been able to locate family for, but the search continues. That just shows what an 
incredible web that is woven for some of these children. I mean, it, it's not an easy process to trace family, particularly when children were quite young, when, when they've been separated. And we did the Uganda rescue in 2011, and just this year we found someone's mum. So that search is just ongoing. From 2011 until now, now 2019. 2019, eight years later. But we found her, and he's now at home with mum. Truly. So that's yeah. another reunification it there. Is, yeah. So from seeing all that in practice, do you feel confident that this is the best, that, as you say, that orphanages are not the, the ideal place for children, even in these really quite often challenging circumstances? Yeah, I really do. And I've, you know, had the privilege of talking to the experts in the world about this issue because it intersects with my research and and to work with them and unilaterally they all say there is no place for orphanages in this day and age there's no financial reason because we know it's so much cheaper to keep kids at home poverty is no reason to remove a child you know we can support them the only reason you would remove a child is an abusive situation or something like you know what we see happen in Australia sometimes but even then those children shouldn't be in institutional settings they should be supported in family-like care if possible so that's all you know happening in these low and middle income countries now Cambodia is closing up a whole bunch of their orphanages Uganda's on the way you know everyone is waking up to deinstitutionalization and we're seeing some really high level things come out of places like the United Nations about this issue so things are really happening top down and they're happening grassroots up and we're hoping one day they'll meet in the middle must be an exciting time to be a researcher in this field it is, yeah. It, I mean, it's um, it's hard to keep up sometimes. It's changing pretty quickly. Things are happening very quickly, and you know, the several we've got the Australian Parliament looking at, the Dutch Parliament looking at, the United Kingdom. Um, you know, things are across all these jurisdictions. But then you have someone, you know, say, "Oh, can you talk to my friend? They're going to a volunteer at an orphanage next week." And you realise that you're not anywhere near where you need to be. So there's so much work still to do. And so the awareness raising continues now. It does, very much so. And awareness raising at all levels, from community all the way up to government. Going into schools as well? Yes, yeah, we're working with the education departments. Um, There's even, we just helped develop a... Uh, module for schools in Victoria that goes into secondary schools that's taught as an ethics module. So there's all sorts of innovative things happening. It's just a matter of getting the word out there and then people really challenging their own preconceptions about it. Well, that's right, and realising that orphanages perhaps are not the ideal place for children. Absolutely, yeah, if we can challenge that mindset. It's a hearts and minds game, really. I think that benevolent harm was a pretty handy term to keep in mind when sometimes our best intentions are not the best. Yeah, and look, we've seen that in this country over and over again, so it's something that we should be regularly challenging ourselves with. Kate, thank you so much for joining us on the Gender Card Podcast. Thanks for having me, Nads. That was international children's rights lawyer and Griffith Law School lecturer, Dr Kate Van Dor, speaking to us on the Gender Card Podcast. And that's all for this episode of The Gender Card. This podcast was produced for the Gender Equality Research Network by Nance Haxton with production assistance from Michael Adams. Stay up to date with this Griffith University podcast on SoundCloud. Speak to you again soon.